Hey, Sandy and Nora fans. As you might recall, Sandy and Nora is on vacation. And so, as promised, this week you are getting an episode from my other podcast called 30 Wood. I hope you only knew today was Tuesday because Sandy and Nora arrived on your phone or in your computer. I hope you're disoriented and full of cheese this holiday. And if you're not, if you're working, thank you for your work. And I do hope that you find some time off. This conversation is between me, poet, activist, and writer Elle Jones, and legendary activist Lynn Jones. It's a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Making change on my mind. Change you can't modify. Change you can't quantify. Look, making change on my mind. This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with two legendary organizers, Lynn Jones and L. Jones. With Lynn, we talk about her book, R is for Reparations, and the way that her project was able to pack a political punch through the voices of children. And with L, we talk about her brand new book, abolitionist intimacies which is out now l jones lynn jones welcome to you both lynn i'd like to start with you can you tell us about r is for reparations and your relationship with fernwood publishing well my my uh relationship with fernwood has been a little bit different because i i say i'm not an author myself but I certainly um, do a lot of reading and have had a relationship with Firmwood to encourage others to write. <laughs> so it goes, uh, it goes way back. Um, one of the uh, areas was the book that Firmwood did with my brother, uh, Rocky, which was called Burnley Rocky Jones um, Revolutionary. So I certainly was on the fringes of contributing to um, that book. And uh, so that gave me a relationship with Fernwood. And seeing what a great job they did on that, I in turn had encouraged other people to do some writing and um, set up uh, interviews with um, Arrow at Fernwood. And that's the great thing about independent publishers. You can have a personal relationship with them. So very much um, in the forefront of the environmental racism uh, movement, uh, encouraged the author of the the award-winning book, There's Something in the Water, uh, that Fernwood uh, published. And um, then it was, okay, we've got these two books going with Fernwood. Um, I had this real, real um, passion about uh, children and their reading habits and that they also needed to be bought into the realm of activism because children are activists too. And that led to the writing of R is for Reparations, which is a whole story in itself. Uh, it was uh, the subtitle was Young Activists Speaking uh, Their Truth. And most recently, um, a book that's not published as of yet, but is in the works, 
which is on um, the women of Africville, written by a person I met um, from Germany who is uh, at the beginning stages of a relationship to have them publish their book. So I feel really proud that although I haven't actually authored any books myself, I have encouraged other authors. So it's been great. That's so important. And Lynn, I think you're probably uh, one of the only, if not the only person uh, that's going to be appearing in this series that has had something to do with a children's book. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the process of creating R is for Reparations. Oh, you know, that's a story in itself, but I'll try to give you the abridged version of how that book uh, took place. And it, it, I can take you to my, my living room and a book that was in, always on the, the coffee table in my living room, which was the story about uh, these photographers who wanted to do something to raise funds for um, AIDS, the AIDS movement. It was called AIDS is for Africa, AIDS for Africa. And these these photographers took one day, um, several well-known photographers, and they took pictures of every country in Africa. There's 52 all on the same day. And then they published a book and sold it. And that sat up on my coffee table for a long time. And then I thought, oh my gosh, here I am involved in this reparations movement. What better way to get people involved than to get the children um, uh, understanding the whole idea of reparations for the atrocities of the transatlantic slave trade? So I thought, okay, maybe we could do the same thing, but do it on reparations and um, do it in a day because we weren't working a lot with children and didn't want to spend a lot of time. So I contacted Fernwood and uh, just uh, gave this idea about doing a book in a day. They said, we've never done anything like that. We've never done children's book. In a- How can you do a book in a day? And I said, I don't know, but we can try. And it was actually Fernwood who came up with the idea of doing it as an alphabet book. And I thought, oh, gee, are we allowed to do that? And they said, of course you can. And um, so that's how it became an alphabet book. And um, neither Fernward nor myself had um, done this before. We uh, were able to engage um, uh, Reverend Denise Gallard, who worked a lot with children in Toronto, but had a Nova Scotia connection, her mom being from Nova Scotia. And she uh, was used to how children work. And we literally did um, a theme of taking the children on an imaginary uh, train ride representing the Underground Railroad. Uh, For the day, used different artistic forms to introduce them to the topic. Um, We invited uh, different artists, including Al Jones, um, Mm -hmm. who was part of the book, The Hours for Reparation Day. It was phenomenal. These children um, had concepts way beyond what we ever imagined they understood or could bring forth. And it was actually the children who challenged uh, the publisher 
to say, uh, like, when will this book be ready? We did this all day. You took our artwork. We we had different forms. When can you get this book together? <laughs> so they made a commitment to have it uh, within a year, which would have taken us to the next African uh, Heritage Month or Black History Month, it's, as it's known. So the push was on. So we actually, from beginning to end, created this book that now has gone global. Um, it's the only book that I know of on the face of the earth uh, for children that addresses the issue of uh, reparations. And, uh, oh dear. So, yeah, so that's basically um, how, uh, how it worked. That's incredible. Elle, I'm wondering, for, for the process of writing abolitionist intimacies, how do you put all of that work together into a cohesive narrative that can eventually become a book? Well, the answer is Fazila. Um, good editing <laughs> at Fernwood. So, I mean, this book went through so many versions. Um, the first version where it was written, um, so Leanne Simpson, Leanne Bettisamasaki Simpson nominated me for this um, Rising Star of the Writers' Trust. And part of that came with Two Weeks in Banff. So that was December 2019, thankfully, right before the COVID shutdown. And I wrote really the first draft of this book then. Um, and that draft was actually pretty comprehensively rejected by like an agent who told me that nobody wanted to read anything about any of this, which was like police, prisons, black people. And of course, then, you know, May 2020 happened, George Floyd and everybody wanted black books about abolition. Um, so there was, a, I guess, a bit of a lag in terms of when the book was written. Um, but then it also became part of my dissertation work at Queens when I was doing my dissertation in cultural studies. Um, so then I had written a bunch of, you know, like scholarly stuff, dissertation type stuff onto it. Um, so by the time Fernwood had it, it was, I think, 400 pages. And wow. uh, there, was a, <laughs> yeah, there was a process of getting it down to 192. So really left less than half of what was in the original. Um, and that was really editing, like um, really sensitive. I mean, at all stages of this, I just feel like I had um, my supervisor, Lisa Gunter, was just such a good editor when I was doing it in my dissertation. And then Fazila carried that on at Fernwood. Um, and I kind of put it in her hands because it had been through so, like some of these things, you know, like poems that you've done a million times and then essay, like it'd been through so much that at that point, you don't really necessarily, I think it's hard to step back and see that full picture. So um, Fazila was just really instrumental in having a vision for what she saw within the book. And um, we had discussions, obviously, but sort of pulling it apart and putting it back together. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, it wouldn't have really happened without her, I think, in the form that it's in. Fazila's name comes up a lot, actually, in these episodes. Uh, and Fazila Jiwa is an editor at Fernwood. Uh, I also have had a, a lot of experience uh, working with her as well. And Elle, I'm wondering... Like when you're trying to bring that real life uh, practice of activism into into a, a project like a book and you're and you're bouncing these ideas off of an editor, like can you explain a little bit about like I don't want to say negotiation necessarily, but that back and forth, the, de the discussion, the debate, this is important, this is maybe less important. How did you live through that? How did you experience that? Um, in my case, I just really let it go. <laughs> and I just kind of trusted her judgment. Um, because as I said, I mean, some of this work is 10 years old. Um, some of it was new. Um, so I just sort of stepped back. She had actually done copy editing on my dissertation. So she had a pretty strong view of the, she'd seen everything. And 
then she sort of shepherded it into publication at Fromwood. So um, she had sort of seen the work change. She had seen edits come in. So she'd kind of seen that whole process. So I think um, she had a really good perspective on it. Um, the sort of first editing process was I had sent um, the original version to the people in it, so the people in prison. And that was really important to me, obviously, that I had their perspective on it. Some people's names are in it, and I wanted to make sure that they felt okay with what was being said about them. Um, you know, so also that the experiences ran true, that the book rang true to, um, you know, what I was trying to talk about. So they had seen everything, um, quite early on. Um, but yeah, I was very, I didn't want it to be an academic text and especially because there was such a delay, like, again, um, some of this work is from like notes in prison is from 2016, maybe, you know, um, which is one of the opening essays. And it's retracing stuff that happened for three years before that. So it's really material, like dealing with stuff from like 2013 to 2016. Um, and then, of course, by the time now, everybody, there's so many books on abolition, right? Like that's just now there's such a new area. So one of the things I was, I guess, concerned about is I didn't want to just be this other book coming in about abolition is almost like a latecomer now, even though the material was older, you know, and I, I was talking about things. And I'm certainly not the first person to talk about abolition. I'm not going to claim that. But, you know, I was talking about it years before you saw this book and developing my thoughts. And of course, because of various delays, whether that was on my dissertation or on the publishing end, um, and the way that Black women's work, I think, is often not received, and it takes us a while to have our work really come into being. Um, because of that, by the time this book was coming out, I was just concerned that into this kind of now crowded field, it would just be one more book coming in. Um, but the thing that I thought was different or, or important in my book is that it's about frontline work. So it's work done with people. It's not just, it's not there's nothing wrong with theorizing abolition. It's not a theory book. It's not meant to be a book like what is abolition? Here's 10 steps. It's meant to be about the messy and complex and painful and joyful work that takes place at, you know, when we're actually fighting together for liberation. So I really, really wanted that to come across. I just did not want it to be something that just felt academic or that people felt that they couldn't read. Um, so that was, I guess, my most important point. And I, you know, at first, I was a little, you know, because I'm like, oh, some of this stuff from my dissertation is, is just there for a dissertation. Like, you know, you just have to do lit review and stuff. I just don't want all this citation. And so that was kind of um, the process, I guess, is is putting it together in a way that didn't make it, that was true to to how it was written and who it was for and the voice that it was supposed to have. And yeah, like I said, uh, Fazila really stepped in there and had a real vision for it and really shepherded it through. Mm. I'm going to come back to uh, that connection between the frontline work that you do and the people uh, that you work with and how that informed the way that you write and the way that you write in general, but also the way that you wrote uh, Abolition Intimacies. But Lynn, I want to come back to ours for reparations. How was it received when it came out? Well, that's a really um, interesting question because... It was great excitement. For example, we had a launch for the book at the library in uh, uh, Halifax. It was well known for it, the community aspect at that library. We had standing room only um, event that took place. So the and there was great excitement. The children hadn't seen the book um, up to that point. And um, the community 
at the same time, wasn't really versed on the issue, many in the community, I would say, of uh, the topic of reparations. Um, we had international guests, uh, in particular uh, a person in the forefront of the movement from Barbados, uh, David Commission, Commission, who was the uh, guest speaker for the event. We had... Um, different, um, it was a really different type of launch. For example, we had puppets who started off the event uh, showing great excitement and and getting people ready for the launch of the book. So when the book uh, was uh, disclosed, <laughs> um, there you, it, it was thunderous applause uh, for the book. Uh, we sold uh, more books, copies of the book than we would have ever imagined, even on that first uh, launch. And um, also that um, it um, there was a great uh, anticipation about what would come of the book, and that was one of the questions: How will we? How will we? Um, how will we spread the word of this book? And that's really interesting because um, there is a bit of a glitch in the whole process. We later probably had more international, um, uh, not, not necessarily interest, but, you know, that saying, you put your money where your mouth is. For example, Barbados made a commitment to put it in their school system because it did have the global aspect. But as of yet, even in Nova Scotia, it's not in the school system in Nova Scotia. It continues to be utilized, but a lot of the word of who is utilizing is not well known. For example, the uh, black social workers uh, use it for all their graduation exercises. They get a gift of, of uh, the RS for Reparations book, and everybody loves it. Um, DPED, which is the uh, umbrella organization of many black organizations in the province, they read passages from the book at every meeting. They have monthly meetings and are for reparations because they like it so much and it can be transferred to an adult listening audience. So they're using it uh, at every meeting. Um, so there is, we've had various speaking engagements where we've taken the children to... Uh, to even talk about what they think about the issue and uh, the whole issue of reparations and uh, how it relates to theirs. Now, many of those children now have grown because I forget how long it is now since we actually published published the book. But, um, yeah, I would like to see more, more work done. Um, in terms of spreading that excitement to to uh, more book, uh, more people having the book in hand. I'm so glad you mentioned the children because that was that was my next question. It must have been so thrilling for them to have experienced uh, creating a book together, and on uh, on a topic that requires active engagement from people who are directly connected to the issue. Can you talk a little bit about those the the involvement of children in creating this book and how important that was? 
Oh, I I can't I can't even like now like I said the children many of the children are are, are bigger now they're teenagers <laughs> and they weren't when they started out and I, I'll often meet them uh, meet some on the streets or whatever and they tell what a great experience that was and how they hear now about reparations because it certainly has grown in um, in terms of the global context of the topic. And that they have been engaged in it since children. Um, they talk about um, like some things in the past book that I didn't understand at the time, and um, it's it's become more clear from the children explaining to me what they met when they when they talked about the book. Like I remember this one part of the book where they say that. Um, they talk about Africville, the community in Nova Scotia that was uh, demolished by the city. And they said, we miss our uncles. It's part of the book. And I'm like, wonder why they miss their uncles. Why didn't they miss their aunties or, or, or what happened to their aunties in Africville? And they weren't around during that time. But what they're talking about later, I learned, was that so many of the men in the community um, were gone. Like the men were gone because of all kinds of things, police brutality, prisons, all these different things. And they felt that, that they, they could understand what happened in Africville created this situation. And that's why they were talking about we miss our uncles. And I mean, to me, that's deep, <laughs> mm, <laughs> really deep. Yeah. And it comes out in the alphabet book of what they um, uh, uh, think about. They talk about things like the children say, um, "We we will we will not resist. We will continue to fight." And I'm thinking these are children, but they know that the issue of of anti anti black racism is something that they can never end. They say in the book, "You owe us." These are children. You owe us for all these things that you did to us, which is part of the reparations trade. They might not say the word reparations, but they know that they're old. And so you, 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 it resonates how children view the same issues that adults do, but use different terminology and different analogies. And the art, too helps to um, understand what it is that they're saying. So, yeah, it really, it, the whole process of working with children is is so special. It taught me, it taught me a lot that um, we, you know, that saying out of the mouths of babes comes this um, incredible understanding. And uh, it helped me to understand even the topic that I had been working at with adults with in a much deeper sense. Well, and just thinking of like the tool of an alphabet book, you know, thinking of the, the the days when I would read my children alphabet books and they were often too young to even know what I was saying. And so it always felt like the message was much more for me as an adult <laughs> in some of the books that I was reading. <laughs> so I, I imagine you've also heard from parents uh, who had uh, probably similar experiences as they were reading this book. Yeah, I think most of the parents... Like I said, these children's parents, many of them, I don't know if I like the terminology, inner city, um, they hadn't been introduced to the topic. 
And then we started to get the parents at adult forums on the topic because their children were teaching them and uh, they wanted to learn more so that uh, they could be in line with their children, which is quite amazing. So it also helped um, the movement to have those adults out when we didn't have them before. Mm. Elle, one of the things that I admire most about your writing is it is so rooted and anchored in the frontline work that you do. You It, it jumps off the page and it, it, it provides a depth to what you say and what you write. Uh, your analysis uh, that is is just absent when that kind of connection isn't there. Can you talk about that um, and how the work that you do, the people you work with, uh, the people you debate with, and I imagine you develop your ideas alongside, uh, how that helps your writing? Yeah, I mean, there's actually sort of points of angst in the book about this. Um, there's a point where I talk about um, Abdul sitting in the jail cell at Lindsay and seeing names of people being deported written around him and understanding that his name is going to go up on that wall next. And in the book, I talk about this kind of haunting image of writing. Um, and, you know, there's various points in the book where I, like, I mean, a lot of when over the time period, this book is written. I mean, I have a job now, but I didn't have a permanent job. I was very precarious. Um, couldn't pay my bills at various points, you know, so like that, is coming through in certain points where I'm like depressed about things, you know, and I'm not always fully articulating why, right. Cause it's not really like necessarily a book about like everything that's personally going on in my life, but you'll see it like under shadowing where I'm talking about crying about not getting a job or just being doubting myself or being really sad and stuff like that. And then the relationship that this work has to that, you know, the, the ways that you have to sort of reset yourself and understand, you know, why are you doing this work? And and this is this point in the book where I talk about, you know, like which life is worth Abdul's, you know, um, which book should I have written that rather than taking the call, you know, like, should I have not picked up the phone to take this call for this person that's in prison because I have to write a book. So um, it isn't a, a relationship I've worked out. In other words, um, I, you know, I believe justice to the living first over like our, you know, recording it, but obviously Black writing is important. You know, obviously the first book of poetry in Nova Scotia that was published, not the first poetry that existed in Nova Scotia, the first African Nova Scotia book of poetry is 1979 Gloria Wesley's book. So that's only like 40 years. Um, so obviously it's important to have this archive and Lynn Jones knows well about the process of archiving and gathering and making sure we collect and remember. Um, but also we can, I think, sometimes overdetermine that in our work and value, you know, the writing over the actual lives that need us, you know, so, and not need us in some savior way, like need us because we are all called to liberation because this is everybody's work. Um, we are all engaged upon it together. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a great answer because I'm not always sure that writing is the solution. That's why I run it by people first. Um, I want to know that the guys and women that are experiencing these things, that what I'm saying rings true to them, that I'm not speaking over them, um, that, you know, the things that are being said are what they want to be known about this experience, that I'm not putting them at risk. Um, they are obviously without, I mean, so many of his stories of other people who have given me permission to talk about these things. Um, you know, I'm talking about people's cases, I'm talking about people's experiences, and that's a lot that people have to allowed to be out there in the world at the expense of their own privacy, their own dignity, their own humanity sometimes, um, that, you know, want us to talk about these things because 
they, as everybody will tell you, like when you get calls from these places, um, people will say, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it so that nobody else has to experience this. Um, so I really try to stay true into that spirit. Um, but I don't know. I think it's always going to be not everybody, you know, I, I think what like sort of writing is witnessing or it's always a fraud area, right? And there's going to be people that disagree with how much you show. There's going to be people that definitely, and, you know, Sadia Hartman writes a lot about this, like black pain and spectacle. Like, are you pushing into sort of saying, like, how much do you need to say to have it represented? How much do you need to keep quiet? How much is yours to tell if it's not your experience? What is your relation? I don't know if there's ever a good answer to that. You know, I, I don't think there's ever an answer that will satisfy everyone who reads the book. Some people may just think, they may disagree on the choices that are made, but I think you just have to make those choices within the best ethical frame you can. I think you have to be thoughtful about it, um, intentional about it. I, like I said, I ask permission of the people I'm talking about. Certainly, you know, they're not unaware of what I'm talking about. Um, in many ways, I think it is collaborative in that sense, um, that so much of this work, the organizing work, you know, this has been done every step of the way together. Um, so, you know, my name's on the cover, but it's certainly not a singular work that way. But then in the end, yeah, as a writer, you make choices and they may not always be the right choices. Five years from now, I may be regretting something. And that's just, you know, a, a process, I think, that happens every time we put things down. And then times change, our own thoughts change. And we have this document that is always going to stand at the time it was written. So I just try to be thoughtful about it. But um, yeah, I don't know if there's ever a good answer for how you blend together you know, the human work, um, the importance of people's privacy and dignity in their own stories, the fact that every time you talk about a human rights case, there is a human at the center of that who is having their rights violated, and you can never capture that. And if it's not happening to you, you're always going to be the someone from the outside actually in freedom that has the luxury of, you know, putting this thing down. Um, and so, yeah, I think we, it's very imperfect, that kind of process. And I'm not always um, secure in that relationship of because I don't think you can be um, in the relationship of trying to speak something like that, um, try to speak about deportation or speak about prison or speak about the child welfare system or speak about what's happening in the shelter or what, you know, people are experiencing, um, what a strip search is, you know, like you can never, ever really speak into what other people have lived, I don't think. One of the questions that uh, I've been asking everybody um is how they've seen their writing evolve. And so, Elle, you ha said that you've got about 10 years between the last time you published with Fernwood and and uh, the, uh, the release of Abolitionist Intimacies. How have you felt your writing has evolved over those years? So Life from the African Resistance, which was also a series of choice making at the time. And I remember I was, very, I was putting, as it says in the book, I'm like putting it together in Black History Month. I didn't have a lot of time. And again, I was like making choices, some of which I regret, you know, um, and I just decided to go with like pure black. I was like, I'm just going to pick everything that's like the blackest stuff that I have. I obviously had other poems. I have feminist. I have all kinds of things. But I was like, in making a choice, I'm just going to go with like the blackest book possible. And it was all spoken word. Um, this book, obviously, I mean, since then, I started writing for The Examiner, which gave me. So this is the Halifax Examiner edited by Tim Biscay. Um, and for quite a few years, like about five years, I was doing weekly columns. And it started out as kind of news coverage and then evolved um, over time. I started writing essays. I started doing sort of longer form pieces. Um, and that really did shape how I started writing about things. So um, sort of, I guess, learning that journalistic writing, I guess, um, through the examiner uh, changed some of what I was writing. And then I got started writing personal essays, you know, so um, 
that process because spoken word I almost never talk about myself once in a while I'll talk about my family but I don't I'm still I don't like I'm not um it is about me like in an intimate way but I don't really get into you know every personal feeling or everything that I, I just that's not my type of writing so this is a bit more intimate than normal and certainly than spoken word where it's just sort of pure politics um but yeah I think it's just a kind of in many ways a journey through all the different kinds of writings and, and ways of writing so and the different circumstances behind that which has changed also just with necessity right like when you have to write something for work when you're writing something because you have an article due when you're writing something because you got to stand on a stage and perform it you know those all shape how we write and how we hear our own voice and uh what we're putting out there and so yeah I think that um it really is a sort of decade journey of trying to trace that like even that relationship to myself as a writer or a thinker, while I'm also, if we want to call it activism, you know, being an activist, organizing, advocating, trying to build things. And like, because those worlds don't always fit together, I think the writing is always trying to make its way towards some kind of resolution and never will resolve it. But I think if I had to describe the process, I think it's a lot of that. Like, um, I guess the last thing I'll say on this topic is, uh, so it's not, this essay didn't actually make it into the book. It was cut, but um, a turning point for me in writing was when we were fighting the case of Abdul Abdi and, you know, we'd been on, this was a national level case. So, you know, you had a lot of media, like he'd be doing four or five media interviews a day and retelling the same story, the same facts, you know, being asked the same questions. And then on Friday, I had to write an article for Saturday with the examiner. I remember saying to Idil Abdullahi, um, I don't know what else I could say. Like, I've kind of said this over and over again. Like, do I have anything left that's new to write for myself in this piece? And she said, you know, girl, you should write about that. You should write about what that looks like. And then I wrote this piece called We Will Win a Week in the Advocacy for Abdul Abdi. And that really was a shift in my personal writing style. And what it is, initially when I started writing it, I wanted people to see you know, especially at the time where people are like, oh, they, they just love to wave signs and get attention. You know, like these activists, they just love, they need to disrupt everything. Like they just need everyone to be looking at them. And it was meant to be an exploration of actually what we experience behind the scenes. And like, we're not just, you know, crashing this meeting because we want attention. It's actually strategized and important for this person's life. Um, so I wrote this down, uh, just like re recapping kind of what we'd experienced, the conversations we had had, like what we were feeling while we were doing this. Um, and I think that shifted a lot about writing for me, like just understanding that I could kind of write in this way. Um, you do see the second part of that essay in the book where I'm going to court for Abdul and like basically contending with hearing all these cases. And part of this story is, of course, in Desmond's book. So um, in The Skin We're In. So, yeah, you kind of get this. I don't know. I mean, that was just an important moment for me. And then later when the case became quite popular and it was on CBC, um, they didn't mention our activism in the story on it. And then it became an archive because I realized after the fact that, you know, so much of what black people do, we get pushed out of in our own work or not recognize, you know, like we're always going to be called the terrorists and the screamers and the tantrum throwers, but not the human rights workers, not the people who successfully fought this case. That becomes the lawyers, right? Like it gets taken from the hands of the community. And so after I remember Adele saying to me, girl, thank God you wrote that piece, because if you hadn't written that, there would be no record of what we actually did. And that was also really important to um, just because as you've understood, I think um, I have, you know, complex feelings about writing and its relationship to activism. Um, I think that's come across in this interview. You know, I, I'm not always sure that words and actions match together in the way that we would like. 
um, sort of spoken word artist, you know, um, and I've also talked a lot about how I like the ephemerality of spoken word, meaning I like that it goes away, you know, that it's a performance and it may not be written down and it changes and lives in people's memories. I actually like that. So um, sort of that way of thinking that, you know, as we document these things, like there's no other story of this case or in this way or what we went through or how we loved or the joy we felt. Um, that was a big shift for me. And I think you see more of that kind of writing throughout this book. This is a really long answer. I'm done talking. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, now the second this is finished, I'm looking up that article. <laughs> I, I love that. I love I, I love how complicated it, it does become because that's exactly I, I feel that often. Right. Am I saying what I would be doing? Am I overstating what I am doing? That kind of thing. <laughs> This is the final question before we get to some some shorter kind of lighthearted questions. And Lynn, I think I know the answer, um, but why is radical independent publishing important? Well, I think that part of the um, difference between independent publishing period and as compared to your box kind of publishing is how you reach out. Like... Through, I mentioned when I started about this not being an author, but but being able to immediately access the publisher like they're my next door neighbor, and that those same people in that publishing house of Fernwood were the people that were protesting when I was downtown protesting. So I met them protesting the same people. At Fernwood Publishing, um, I remember one of the publishers, Errol, was my uh, dearly departed sister's um, card partner in the in the African Nova Scotian community. We play a lot of um, uh, cards, and uh, the game of choice often is whist, which is a North American game because they play it on the American side. And uh, Errol learning to play whist in the community with tournaments, and so he was my sister's uh, partner. That same person I had easy access to um, as a as a friend, as a as a, a a family friend, to then say, "Listen, I, you know, you publish books, and there's these things happening in the community that I think are really important, and they need to be written about." Um, I think, for example, I use the environmental racism movement, which my brother Rocky was really involved with um, when it was uh, first being talked about, I suppose, in the a lot <laughs> in the uh, early 70s. And then it surfacing again in the uh, 90s and 2000 and being able to say, listen, there's this topic, environmental racism, um, that's percolating in the community. It's really affecting what is happening and being able to easily talk to Firmwood about that because they also were out there um, uh, 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 protesting and, and being part of that issue. So it was quite easy to sit down. Well, let's have a coffee and talk about what, what, what do you mean by that? And uh, what, what word, what do you think the, the public needs to know about it? And does that translate into a, something that they could read about? And of course you come up quite easily with, yeah, it is. Let, let's do it. It's never been done before. 
um, for you mentioned earlier, for example, uh, R is for reparation. You would be, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the movement around reparations and the organization that I belong to in Nova Scotia, which is an international um, uh, movement, which is the Global African Congress. And we had a Nova Scotia chapter. So it's actually that organization that was raising the issue. So when you go to the an independent radical publisher, um, most most people don't want didn't at that time want to touch the issue. I mean, imagine reparations and and that uh, somebody actually old for these atrocities. No way, they weren't touching that with a ten point four but uh, foot pole ten foot pole. But when you have independent publishers, their goal is not to be. Um, well liked or, or or politically correct, it's reporting on and and giving the audience an opportunity to learn about the real issues that are affecting these communities. In our case, it was marginalized uh, communities. I should think that those independent publishers, in terms of statistics and percentages. Um, uh, have far more uh, reaching arm in terms of issues that we could never get on the table. Um, uh, Anti-Black racism, feminism, um, environmental uh, issues. If you're even today, if you want to really find out about these things, prison reform, um, then you're more likely to get a true picture from these radical independent uh, uh, publishers. Not only that, we've seen the effect, and it's it, although it's it, we've seen the effect of what happens when we have these avenues to get our word out, and then they're removed. And I'm I'm thinking of independent uh, newspapers too, and I think of uh, my dear friend. Robert uh, DeVette, who who published the um, Nova Scotia Advocate newspaper and then passed away. There's a void in the community. We can't get our word out the way we used to through his newspaper now that it's gone. Imagine if the these publishers, independent publishers, were all gone. How would we get, quotes unquote, some of the left views and issues and things that are truly affecting um, the community. I I was just listening on the news today about um, uh, what effect the election um, uh, of the new leader of the Conservative Party would have on the community. And part of it was to say that those the kinds of concerns that we have, like around um, housing and what have you, wouldn't wouldn't have the same of effect, wouldn't have the same effect under a conservative agenda as compared to more of a labor left agenda. So it's no different with books, and, and I don't know if I've offered clarity in terms of that, but I understand completely because I, I live it on a daily basis. When you're on the on the streets doing your activism, you know the difference between um, um, uh, what, what 
what your needs are in terms of getting your word out and, and ultimately to uh, change society because it's not just about reading the book. It's what action, for me anyway, what action people will take when they get this information. Elle, I'm wondering, what is your favorite place to write and your favorite place to read? Oh, God. <laughs> I used to make Desmond, fun of Desmond for this because, you know, when his book came out, he started getting all these gigs where they'd be like the author at work. And I would always like be like, oh, you got to make sure you put all the smart books on your desk, you know, <laughs> and everybody thinks. Um, I don't actually, I mean, I work in bed. I work on my phone for poetry, um, which I just learned to do because I, you know, when I was in a lot of times I'd be writing for something and like while I was on the bus because that was the time I had. So I write in the Docs to Go app on my phone mostly for poetry. Um, and then, uh, with writing, I don't work well from home, like on long, like for poetry and stuff. Yeah. Or shorter term stuff. But I find that I just won't start. Like if it's a project or like a, a talk or what, I don't know. I find it hard to work at home. Like I'll do everything but work. So I just do better. I mean, Banff was great. Send me back there. Somebody, you know, I got, <laughs> got the whole thing written, you know, um, I, I had to do my dissertation in Airbnbs, like literally rent an Airbnb for like the week. Um, so yeah, I actually do best either in social situations where everyone's writing and then I'm just like, okay, sit down and write or just getting out of the house or like, yeah, I'm going away. So I don't know why that is, but I think once I relocate myself, I just can focus and do it very quickly. But at home, I feel I'm always putting it off and I'm torn by this and this is happening and I never sit down and do it, which is why it took me 10 years to get a book out, I guess. Mm. And for, for folks who don't know, Banff is uh, a, a location where there's there's lots of writing retreats uh, and is kind of this like magic. Also funded by oil money. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this magic space that writers and, and other artistic people often uh, will, will shorthand refer to Banff as this wonderful. I also would love to go <laughs> someday. <laughs> It's actually, I always say that it's super funny because like you go in at lunch, like half the table's in crisis and they're like, oh, my writing's going terrible, you know? And then you come back at dinner and the half that was in crisis at lunch is like, oh, it's okay. I actually got some writing. Everyone who was happy at lunch is now in crisis. So yeah, you get a real. <laughs> Sounds like first year journalism school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Lynn, what's on your to read pile right now? I'm one of these people that have... Um, several books going at the same time. There's never just one. And they're so, can be so vastly different. I'm right now reading a book. I'm just grabbing it because it's close at hand. It's called uh, The Community Land Trust Reader, edited by John Emius Davis. And I have a project that is um, happening in my community of Truro, where we've just created the first of two community land trusts in all of the province. So uh, of which one is in the black community where I come from in Truro. So I have to read, and this book is extremely big. It's thick, thick, thick. But it gives me a bit of a roadmap for... How how are we going to really make this community land trust work to create affordable housing in a traditional Black community um, in Nova Scotia? So I have that going um, as kind of my serious uh, reading. And at the same time, 
I am rereading a book by a local author. Her first book, uh, Angie Parker is her name, who comes from the same community, who is terminally ill with ALS. And she's written a book on her journey with ALS and being a single parent of twins. But I see a central theme. Not uh, there is the ALS, but it's this also the story of um, of um, being um, sexually violated and how that played out in her life, and and it's really moving. And so those are the two major things, and always at the same time. I keep a big list of meditation books because that's what allows me to do all my activism is to stay grounded. I think Elle talked about it, her trip to Banff and what have you, but my, I don't have that luxury, but I always have a, a great many meditation books going at any given time. Elle, do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? No, um, I hate writing. So I like it. Like Once you're doing it, it's fine. And like when it's done, it's good. well, then it depends when it's done, you know, then I never want to look at it. Um, so basically my ritual is I just put it off. I put it off. I put it off. Then I become so anxious about it. I'm unable to do it. <laughs> then I feel guilty about not doing it. And eventually I leave the house and get it done. So that's kind of my ritual. <laughs> Lynn, what are you doing for fun these days? <laughs> Well, that's, uh, I haven't been asked that question in a long time. And you wouldn't believe this, but the activism that I do, the things I do, I mean, I've been retired. I, I, I think over 10 years, I don't know how long I'm supposed to be retired. And I'm still doing all this activism and what have you. And for me, that is fun. It's fun because I get to, um, I love to uh, strategize and figure out how to put community together. I'm an avid reader, but it usually the fun part for me is re reading to figure out how to make things work in the community. And in between all of that, fun for me is experiencing new things, whether it be just a, a walk in the country. I love bird watching. And when it's not formal bird watching, I love sitting. It's fun for me to watch to see what animals are doing or what birds are doing. Those, those kinds of things. It's 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 uh, great fun. And I'm like Elle. I do love to write. I, I, I mean, people keep saying, oh, you need to write a book. But I love to um, put thoughts on paper. And uh, I love, uh, when you talk about reading, I love archiving. When I think of the archives that I did, I said, how did I do that? It's because I love the history. I love reading it over and over and over again. I could just go in an archives and read the same thing every time I went and enjoy it. So all of that is fun. It's uh, it's fun meeting people. I love meeting people and asking them questions. I could sit and interview somebody all day long just 
to find out how, why are you, why are you doing that? How did you do that? Who helped you? And those kinds of things. All that's fun. Elle, what's a book that has changed your life? I always tell the story and I tell this in my book as well. Like I, I always say I became an abolitionist at 13 when I read Ballad of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde. So I suppose that's one, not so much a book. I mean, it's a long form poem um, that he wrote about based on his experiences in prison. But that was the first issue that I understood as a social justice issue. I was 13 when I read that poem. And it really, at that moment, um, I was like, yes, this is unjust. So I suppose a lot of my life trajectory was shaped in that poem. Um, I mean, there's so many, I mean, at various points, um, Audre Lorde's work, I think you can always go back into that and find an explanation of what's happening in your own life. Um, I'm going to shout out Rocky's book for the same reason. I find uh, Rocky's autobiography very helpful in addressing things that you're experiencing in life. So I think, I don't know that all books, like important books always change your life. I think sometimes it's that they speak to or come at the right time to, um, you know, offer you some companionship and sense that, you know, other people have experienced these things that you're experiencing and you're not actually crazy. Um, so yeah, I mean, Audre Lorde's work is that, I mean, obviously Angela Davis's work, you know, we forget that the new Jim Crow isn't that old. It seems like it's been around forever with Michelle Alexander, but it's only from 2008, you know, which is strange because it seems like we always knew that stuff. Um, there's, you know, so much, but perhaps the first big one was Ballad of Reading Jail for me. Mm. Now, Lynn, this is the last question, and I know a lot of people look up to you. And so I'm wondering, who do you look up to? Before I go to the who, who do I look up to, I can I answer the question, the book that changed my life? Of course. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting you'd ask me that question today, because I just re, uh, recalled that even yesterday, the same question. And so it's amazing. It's so I'm meant to answer it. The book that changed my life, I don't even have to think about. It was around Elle's same time. So there must be something about that 12, 13-year-old age. And it was Uncle Tom's Cabin. And up to that point, I had always I came from a family we always knew about the whole institution of slavery we were were fortunate compared to many families in in within our home uh, looking at black history and whatever but it hadn't really reached my soul I guess is the way of putting it and I started Uncle Tom's Cabin one evening and I read it all night. I didn't stop. I, I, I read it all night. I had school the next day, but I stayed up and wrote. When I got up in the morning, I still recall my mom saying, my gosh, girl, what happened to you? Because my eyes were all puffed up from crying all through the night. And I didn't have even the critical analysis. I hadn't developed it to the way it might be today because when I finished reading the book, I couldn't believe I, 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 it hit my soul over what had happened to us as African people during slavery. And I was appalled and why it changed my life was it helped me to understand where the racism that I 
experienced and looked at at that time in my life and a resolve to to fight, to change things. At the same time, when I say I didn't develop the critical analysis, I came out reading that book thinking, oh, Uncle Tom is the greatest person in the world. I, I, I want to be an Uncle Tom. He was so sweet. <laughs> so that's why I say I hadn't developed the critical, even the critical analysis of who Uncle Tom really, really, um, really was. Somebody reading that book today wouldn't, I'm sure, have the, it wouldn't have the same effect on them because they would have been exposed to more black history, um, terminology, nuances and what have you. But you got to think of my time, the time that I was in. It was the first book that I had ever read about the institution of slavery. So uh, it, 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 it still resonates today. Um, and, and when I go back, and I've read it several times since then, and uh, have been able to look at, uh, look at it from all different perspectives, but when I read it at that time as, as a 12, 13-year-old, it had a, 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 a totally different effect. So it changed my life. It really did. And what I was, what I have resolved to do, and I think that that resolve has carried me up until this day. That we've got a lot of work to do, and um, there's no such thing as retiring from doing the work that needs to be done to eradicate um, all of these injustices. So now you can ask the next question, whatever it was. <laughs> well, and and who is someone you look up to? Um, who is someone I look up to? Um, think that they haven't been given their proper due. Now, isn't this terrible? Um, what's her name? Who uh, in the American woman who um, went back and brought all the people out of slavery? Isn't that Tubman? Very tough, isn't that awful? <laughs> Old age. I don't think she's ever been given her proper due. And I look, I can't believe what she went through and what she was able to accomplish. Nobody that I know of, male, woman, beasts, <laughs> whatever, has been able to do what she's done. And then I, I totally look up to her. The fact her, her, her strength, her strength of kicking the man to the curb when um, he didn't do her properly, the strength of risking her life so many times, her strength of carrying so many people out of bondage and slavery. The fact that she was a woman um, who, uh, who who did this? The fact that when people wouldn't come along, she did her best to bring them. But if you can, if they didn't, she moved on to the next uh, person. The fact that she went up against the establishment at risk to her own life and limbs. But to this day, I always felt that you know, I I I didn't do my job either. Of um of spending more time getting her the honor and accolades that she so rightfully deserved. So for me, Harriet Tubman, um, she she's the ultimate 
um, uh, from my perspective. There's many people I like, many of them that I've learned about. More so, you learn about the men in the struggle, which is understandable, the sexism. Um, I, uh, but her, I, I think, too, in the terms of the men of Malcolm X, I mean, there's a million people that say they... Uh, they honor and and respect all the work that Malcolm X did, but I I was really upset with Malcolm X. I I mean I liked what he did up till his trip to Mecca, his journey, and I still don't get it. I still don't uh, stand by uh, uh, the changes that he felt uh, that he made at that time. But certainly up to that point, he was my my hero. <laughs> But that's, of course, that will be debated until time immemorial. But so many of the women, I just think that uh, that uh, women, period, haven't been given their rightful rightful due. And until the women, like Elle, tell the story, it's always going to be that way because I don't think the men, we can leave it up to the men to do that. Lynn, where can people find R for Reparations and find out more about the work that you're involved in? Well, that's a good question because um, R is for Reparations. In terms of, of getting the book, of course, they can get the book through Firmwood Publishing's Firmwood Publishing themselves. They can get the book. But also, I think that um, what we need is um, to, um, they, they, they have the book uh, at uh, some of the uh, major bookstores. Ours, for, uh, the Firmwood is the best place to get it. Amazon has it, but per usual, the price at Amazon is probably triple what you can get at other places. I don't get that, but that's a difference in the types of uh uh, publishers, they in Halifax, they have it on what's the name of the bookstore there on uh, Spring Garden Road at Bookmark. Bookmark, it's available at Bookmark. Some of the places like um, small little museums, like the African Film um, Museum, carries it. The um, Museum in Troll carries like so. It's not so easily accessed. Unless you're online, but hopefully somebody somewhere will do something about that um, uh, so that it's more widely and easily available. Elle, what about abolitionist intimacies? On the Fernwood site, you can pre-order it or pre-order it from independent booksellers as well. So we had a question about independent publishers, like let's try not to order it from Amazon um, so you can order it from Bookmark, you can order it from the King's Bookstores having copies, and you can order it direct from Fernwood as well. Um, or if you live in a city with an independent bookstore, go and ask them if they can bring it in, and I'm sure they will. Um, yeah, and there's also, I believe, an e-version, so you can get it out of Fernwood Press. So uh, go look in the fall catalog, and there's also some other amazing books coming out this fall. Um, Asif Rashid and Jordan House have a book coming out I think it's called Solidarity Behind Bars. It's the first book in Canada about labor organizing in prison. Um, so that's in the fall catalog. Um, there's a lot of work by Indigenous authors in this catalog as well. I think a re-edition of Daniel Paul's work as well. So um, people should check out the whole catalog and get stuff. 
Absolutely. Lynn Jones and L. Jones, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to my conversation with L. Jones and Lynn Jones as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Fortress of magnitude, they can't subdue. Liberation is radical. You're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical. Point of view, more than two.